Hey, we are beginning a three-week series tonight called Therefore. Can you guys say Therefore? Good, good. That was just a pastor trick to get you guys to be quiet. It worked. Sweet. Um, so excited. It's a three-week series on Romans 8, and Natalie Hill is going to be speaking tonight, which I'm very excited about. I also wanted to brag on her just a little bit. Every series that we have, we have what we call a series architect that helps plan out every single week the main points of scriptures. And so not only is she preaching tonight, but for our other speakers that are speaking in this series, she's helped them prepare and helped us prepare as a team. And so I have the privilege of speaking next week and Brittany Jones the week after, which we're really excited about. Um, but before, uh, without any further ado, I guess, I want to give it up for Natalie. You guys know her. She leads worship, creative arts. She was a student here, did her internship here. She loves Chi Alpha uh, even more than I do. I'm so glad to call her a friend. Uh, man, she loves Jesus dearly. She has changed the way that I personally think about worship. She loves you guys. She loves our family. She loves the ministry. And uh, for those of you guys that know her personally, know that she's a huge blessing and an asset to our community. And so um, she has a quiet wisdom about her, and uh, I hope you guys, are, I know you guys will be blessed tonight, so pray you'd open up your mind and hearts and your journals, and would you help me welcome Natalie Cahill. just get me every time. <laughs> Don't even. So tonight I'm excited to start our series on Romans 8, as Blaine talked about. Um, the, the series is called Therefore. We're just talking about this one chapter of the Bible, and it, it honestly is, is one of my favorite chapters, if not my favorite chapter. There's just so much that you can get out of it. It's so full. I mean, the whole book of Romans is so full of so much wisdom. Uh, in this chapter, we get to spend three weeks on it, which really we could spend a semester on it, this, this, this one chapter of Romans. So I'm excited to start that. Romans is a book written by Paul to the church at Rome. And so to the Christians in Rome, this is a letter to them. And Romans is kind of the, the climax of our faith. Everything of the, in the Bible leads up to this moment, and it really explains the gospel, explains who, um, who God is and who he is to us. And what this whole, this whole faith, this whole thing is all about. There was this uh, singer, I, I put it in quotes because he was more like a spoken word was. I mean, he's, I, I, he's still alive, I think, um, it, but in the 90s, so, you know. Um, he's like more like spoken word, but not like spoken word that we think of now that's like cool. Back in, at the time, it was cool and trendy, but um, his name was is Carmen and some of you guys might know Carmen or your families might know Carmen um, okay all two of you who were born and raised like I was um, he's kind of he looks like a mixture between Mel Gibson and Alan Thicke and um, he, <laughs> but right like look him up I mean he really does anyway um, and so he was this you know singer this Christian singer and he's super super popular and um, he, uh, he had some great hits like Mission 316 and uh, The Witch's Invitation, I think is what it was called. Um, but, and he, he would play like big concerts, big shows. And, uh, and my, my, I think my favorite one is a, a song called The Champion. And 
if you guys have, you know, 20 minutes to spare in your life, you can look on YouTube. There's a live version of it, and it's awesome. And really, the champion is this, this song or this story about uh, a boxing match between Jesus and the devil. And it's like, you know, it's all decked out. And Carmen, he, you know, has this very large portfolio. He's not only the voice of Jesus, he's also the voice of the devil, but also the voice of God the Father and the angels in the audience and the demons in the audience and, you know, thunder and lightning and everything. And it's like this big production, right? And you guys think I'm exaggerating, but, like, this is, like, this is real. And um, so there's this part in this, you know, 30-minute song where uh, we think that Satan has defeated Jesus in the ring. And, and, you know, spoiler alert, it refers to the crucifixion. And so he's down, and, and the, the music, like, comes down, and it's starting to, like, build slowly. And, you know, Mel Gibson Carmen is, like, saying multiple voices, right? And it's, like, building. And the people in the audience, you can see, they're, like, on the edge of their seat. Like, they don't know the end of the story or don't own his CD at home. And... Um, they're like waiting in anticipation, right? And they're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And the music like swells and it gets to this big part. And then at the end, like Jesus just comes up and he defeats Satan once and for all. And I kid you not, the audience, they stand to their feet and they're like, woo, like cheering. Like this was like the climax. They're all like rejoicing. They're applauding. It's like this big moment where Carmen and all of his voices and then all of his like audience is just like up on their feet praising Jesus from the story that they already knew and song they already knew. And I kind of, when I read Romans 8, I kind of picture that, um, that this is kind of what Paul had in mind when he was writing it. Like, this is the climax of everything led up to this point. Every single moment of the Bible led to this big, high climactic point. But in order to understand Romans 8, I think we need to understand what comes before it. I think we need to understand um, not only Romans 7, which I think really uh, leads up to that point, but also the 44 books that come before that. So before we even get into Romans 8, we're just going to cover the first half of the Bible, if that's all right. But before we get into that, um, let me pray one more time. God, I just pray that you would reveal yourself, that your words would speak through me, that this won't be of myself, it would be of you, God. Um, I pray that you would speak. Would you, would you reveal yourself? Would you reveal your heart tonight as, as we study your word and what the gospel is about? And through everything, God, would you be glorified? I pray this in your name. Amen. So if you guys have a Bible, you can turn with me to Romans 7, where we're going to start. And um, once I get there, it'll come onto the screen. But before we get into that, I think it's important to just get, like, the background for what we're talking about. So the headline, uh, the, the, top, the topic of this chapter in Romans 7 is talking about being released from the law. I think in order to understand what that means and what Paul is talking about, we have to understand the law and what that was and what it means for us and why then are we wanting to be released from it? What does that all mean? So the Old Testament was mostly all about the law. Definitely the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, they're about the law. They're about this old covenant. And I've got a couple um, diagrams, Venn diagrams, if you will. Um, and unfortunately, I did not make them up. The Bible Project did, but I'm stealing them. Um, the first one, um, Prince, you can throw up there. Well, I guess it's not really a Venn diagram yet. It's like a pie chart without slices or um, a circle. But um, I promise it, it will get um, more educational later on. But 
so in the beginning, in Genesis, we see that God created this world that was perfect, right? It was in the Garden of Eden. It was where heaven and earth dwelled together, um, that, it, that humanity could be in God's presence in perfect harmony, and that's how God created it. And what we see in Genesis is that Adam and Eve, the first humans, they sinned. And because of sin, what we see is that um, we were separated from God's presence. God's presence could no longer dwell with humanity. Um, the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve were, were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. They couldn't live there anymore. And what we see through this is, is a sin nature. The Bible says that because of them, we are all born sinful. In Romans 5, 12, it says that death and sin entered through Adam and Eve and through their sin. And in Romans 5, verse 19, it says that through the disobedience of one man, all were made sinners. And so this is what, what we're talking about with sin nature. Now, because of that sin, that original sin through Adam and Eve, we are born into this world into a sin nature. And that's not really popular, I think, in our world. It's really easy for us to just talk about, oh, people are good, and some people might choose to be bad, but people are naturally good. And the Bible just doesn't really say that. The Bible says that through Adam and Eve and through their sin, we are sinful. So the Bible talks about this old self, this life in sin, um, refers to it as the flesh, like our earthly actions, our earthly desires, not being of God. Jeremiah in, in the Old Testament says that the heart is deceitful above all else. And so because of our sin, we're separated from God. We can no longer live like we lived in the Garden of Eden. We're separate from his presence. And so the whole first part of the Bible is really about how God's people were constantly trying to get back to the Garden, how they were trying to be able to live in God's presence, how our sinful selves could be in the presence of a holy God as we are so sinful and unholy. And that's where the law came in. That's where the Old Covenant came in, in the Old Testament. And the next actual Venn diagram, um, before Christ, we see the way that that happened was through the temple or the tabernacle. So that's where God's presence would dwell. And there was a curtain that would separate the, the, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence was. And you could only enter it if you were completely clean. And so there's this list, this law, this, this list of rules and guidelines for ways to purify ourselves because... Um, our impurities represented death, and, and the nature of God is life, and so it just literally, because he was so holy, we couldn't dwell together with him. And so all of these, uh, these guidelines helped us so that we could be in his presence. So, like, disease was not allowed, or sexual impurity was not allowed. He was just too holy for us, and so we had to um, offer sacrifices. There had to be something that would atone for our sins, so, so we read in the Old Testament about um, sacrificing a perfect lamb in order to enter. And so there are all these rituals, these rules and guidelines that could get us into his presence because of our sin. We are so separated from his holiness. So what we see is that the law wasn't wrong in and of itself. It wasn't sinful. Um, actually, it was, it was really a form of grace because this was our only hope of being able to be in the presence of God. But in Romans 7, we see that the law was not enough and it contributed to our sin, right? Um, Paul was saying that in an effort to do good, um, the law brought about our death because of our sinful nature. And so in Romans 7, verses 14 through 20, you can read along with me or on the screen. This is what Paul says. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave into sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. 
And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have not the desire, or for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. That's a lot of do's and not do's and do-do's and it's just confusing, but basically what he's saying is the things that I want to do, I don't do. and The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. So I'm doing the wrong thing. Um, people are laughing that I said do-do. I know, I know that. Um, I vowed that I wouldn't do it, and I, I did it. Um, and so Paul is saying that because of his sin nature, he keeps falling back. He keeps falling into these same things that he knows he doesn't want to do, but he does them anyway. No matter how hard we try, we can't live by the law because of this nature, this sinfulness inside of us. A lot of you guys know I grew up in Buffalo, New York, where it um, snows about 13 months out of the year. Um, you guys are like, wow, she must have studied anthropology. She doesn't know what a Venn diagram is. She doesn't do math. Um, and so we, we invent these games to, uh, to cope with the weather. And some of you guys, if you come from a snowy place, know the game King of the Hill, which at least our version was basically you just try to be the first person to get up to the top of a snow hill, which seems really easy, but it's much more complex than that because you have to shove people and wrestle people down on the way up the hill. And also, it's pretty impossible to run in snow, let alone a giant snow suit and snow boots and basically a mask that you can't breathe out of. Um, so King of the Hill, it's a really intense game. My friends, they had a, a slightly different game. Um, it was a game called King of the Hills. Um, yeah, it was a little bit different. I didn't like it as much. Basically, the rules of the game were that you had to um, wrestle and sit on top of Natalie Hill and Olivia Hill. Uh, and, and the whole point of the game was that for, for me and my sister to try to get out from under them, um, all of them being guys, which now is weird. Um, and... What would happen is, even if they let us out or if we could get out, we couldn't really stand up or run very far in our, you know, snow gear and outfits. And on top of that, they were faster than us, they were stronger than us, and we were just, like, exhausted. And no matter what, like, it was the, the least fun game I've ever played my entire life. Um, I still get a little bit angry thinking about it. Um, and the feminist in me does not want to admit that, like, they were just way stronger than me and there was no way that I could get out from under them. And they just thought this was hilarious. Um, but the truth is I just couldn't overcome it. And so no matter what, like, even if I would get out, I would just be pulled back down every single time. And I think that this kind of is what our sin looks like, right? Like, even, even the times we can get out from, from the things that we don't want to do, we just keep falling back. We still keep being conquered by it. And I don't know what that, that might look like for you. I mean, it could be shows or movies and things that you know that you don't need to put into your body or think about in your mind, but continuing to do it. It could mean um, your words or gossip. It could be um, purity in relationships or jealousy. What I do is I keep finding myself doing these things that I know I don't want to do, and I know that are wrong, but I keep doing them. And then what happens is I feel this, like, extreme guilt and shame um, and anger at myself for doing things that I know I don't want to do. 
and no matter what, I can't overcome that on my own. My own, I can't get, get out of it. And I think that that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. We're doing the things that we don't want to do. And it's frustrating him, right? And so back in Romans 7, verses 24, or 21 through 24, this is what it says. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? So what he's saying is, I, is he delights in God's law, but there's something else that just keeps pulling at him, right? There's something that's pulling away from that. In our flesh, there's something that pulls away from delighting in God's law. His law was not enough. And this is our sin nature. This is our flesh. He's saying that we are are prisoners to sin. We're slaves to this death and to this sin nature that's inside of us. And I think verse 24 of chapter 7 is, is that build that we saw in Carmen's song, right, where people are like on the edge of their seat and we're waiting. And it's almost like Paul is baiting us, right? Like, who can save me from this, this impending death? And so this climax is building and it's building when my friends were playing King of the Hills, the only way that the game would ever end would be if some of my other friends who were standing and watching and laughing much longer than I would have liked for them to, was for them to come and to push the other guys off and to hold them off while my sister and I could get up and run away and be free from that. Like it took someone else who was stronger than me and who could help me, who was already on their feet, to be able to free us from them. I really couldn't do it by myself. I needed something else. Verse 25 of chapter 7 says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is the part in Carmen's song where everyone's on their feet and they're cheering because we have the answer to this. We have the answer to this, this problem that we've been dealing with since the beginning of time of our sin nature. Jesus Christ comes and through him the law has been abolished. The new covenant has come and we have life. So that's where we pick up in Romans 8. And in Romans 8, I'm going to read um, the first part of the chapter, and if you'll follow along with me, and then we'll kind of deconstruct it a little bit. Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, this is what it says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law has, was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. 
So what we see in Romans 8 is that instead of this law of sin that we've been living in for so long, instead of that, we get life. We have a new law of the Spirit. This is the new covenant. So the old covenant is what the law was. It was called the old covenant. Jesus came and brought the new covenant. He brought it through his death and his resurrection by defeating sin and death once and for all. There's this passage in Matthew 27 where um, the Bible is talking about Jesus' crucifixion. And um, just real quick, I'm going to read that because it's talking about this, this veil that was torn when he, when he finally died. It says um, in verse 51 of chapter 27, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. As I talked about before, the, the temple, the, the veil, was to separate God's presence from the rest of us because we weren't holy enough. But when Jesus died and defeated death, defeated sin, the symbolism is that the, the, the veil was torn and that that separation no longer existed. And then the, the last Venn diagram up there, um, so after, after Jesus came, the thing that before it was the temple that kept us in, be able to be in his presence. And, and now that Jesus came and died, he's the thing that, that allows us to ha- be in his presence. That no longer do we have to do the rituals, the cleansing, the rules and the regulations. That isn't what purifies us. What purifies us is Jesus who defeated death on the cross. Christ was that sacrificial substitute that we talked about, that lamb, that perfect lamb that we had to sacrifice back before he came. He did that once and for all and defeated death. So no longer do we have to do that. That atoned for our sins once and for all. So this series is called Therefore because we're talking now about, okay, because of Jesus, now what? What does life look like after this? If pre-Jesus meant falling to our flesh and our sin nature and having to offer sacrifices and to have rituals and to be clean and purified constantly. What does life post-Jesus look like? What does it look like after his death and resurrection? The first word of the chapter is therefore, and we call this series therefore. It means for that reason, consequently. Everything that comes after this word is the gospel. Everything that comes after this sentence is what we're here for. This is what our life means because of Jesus. And so what it's saying is, therefore, for that reason, consequently, because of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has freed us from the law of sin and death. That's the story of the gospel. Because of Jesus, we are freed from sin and death. So just in this part of the chapter, I feel like there are a couple things that we see that Jesus' death and his resurrection did for us and what we receive because of it. The first thing we see in verses 1 and 2, it's freedom. It says that we don't have to live according to the flesh anymore, to our sin anymore. Our old self has passed away. We are able to desire spiritual things. We're able to to receive life and peace. So not only are we we freed from from sin and from death, but we're also free, it says, from condemnation, from guilt and shame. 
no longer are we defined by our, by our past, by our sin, what we've done before, and there's no guilt in it. That no longer is what God sees when we enter his presence. What he sees is just us and who he's created us to be because of Jesus. So first we receive freedom. Another thing that we receive is life. Verses 10 through 13, they say this, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so we see this new, this new life that we receive through the spirit. If you've been around the church for any extended amount of time, I'm sure you've heard the term being born again. And this is just our, the church's way of kind of explaining this old self, this old body, our old flesh being put to death and receiving a new life, being born again in Christ. This also isn't always earthly, so I don't want this to always look like maybe a prosperity gospel type preaching or that we think that we just receive this earthly life I think sometimes it can look like that, and God blesses us in that way, but we also saw the last couple of weeks that that was not true for, Joan, or for Job. Um, so it's not always earthly, but we receive a life that's of the Spirit, that's so much greater in the spiritual realm than what we know in our earthly realm. So one, we get freedom. Two, we get life. The third thing I see that we get through Jesus is adoption. If you'll read with me verses 14 through 17, it says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And the footnote of that, that, that term sonship, it really refers to every legal standing of an adopted son in Roman culture. Like you are an heir now to that family because you've been adopted into sonship. And it says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We're not slaves. We've, we've been adopted into his family. We don't have to live in the fear of being a slave, slave to sin or even a slave to God, but we are children of God. That term Abba, it, the, closest, the closest definition for that in our, in our language is daddy. It's this intimate relationship that we have with God as children, as sons and daughters. We've been basically legally adopted by God into his family. And um, what that means by being his, his, his children is that we're heirs of God and we're co-heirs with Christ. So we get to share in Jesus' sufferings and we get to share in his glory. My sister and brother-in-law a couple weeks ago adopted a dog, um, a, a six-year-old uh, dog. Her name is Lily, or as my mom calls her, Lily Pond. Um, and she's been abandoned by quite a few families and just was left at the, the shelter uh, the last time. And Olivia and Ben saw, my sister and brother-in-law saw her and um, came and they adopted her. And she was telling me the other day that she wishes she could just tell her that, that she's theirs forever, and that she's not going to abandon her, 
that they're not going to give her away. This is, this is like her forever home, right? She wishes she could tell her that, and, and she also just sends me pictures constantly. Like, she thinks she's the best dog in the entire world. She thinks she's the greatest. And I think this is kind of just a, a little snapshot of how God views us, right? Like, he, he doesn't want to abandon us. He says, you're mine forever. I have chosen you. I have brought you into adoption. I'm your dad. And I know not all of us have had, um, you know, the, the, the most loving or accepting parents. I, I've been blessed to have that. But when you're adopted, the, you've been chosen. They chose you. They chose you forever. And God chose us forever to be in his family. He's not going to leave us or abandon us. So as heirs with, heirs with Christ and heirs of God, we get to, to partake in everything that, that means of being part of his family, that he is our dad. So we, we receive his freedom, life, adoption, and lastly, we receive authority. In Romans 8, we see that the Spirit empowers us. And as heirs of God, as, as fully adopted children of God, we have an inheritance, right? And that inheritance is this power and this strength to, to overcome our flesh, that same power that, that conquered the grave that was in Jesus when he died for us and defeated death once and for all. We get that. That lives inside of us, right? Because we've been given this inheritance as heirs, as children of God. We share in that same power that Jesus had because not only is he a son, but we're sons and daughters of God. The thing about all of this is that it wouldn't be a relationship if we didn't have the, the choice to accept it, right? And I think God, that, that's one of the most beautiful things about our relationship with our Heavenly Father is we get to choose if we receive the life we've been given. Verses 9 and 10, it says that this is only for those who are in Christ. It's only for those who have accepted it, who have believed it and accepted it. And you know, a lot of us in the room, uh, we have done that. We have accepted it. But even beyond that, I do think that, that sometimes, I think we operate out of a mindset that maybe we believe that Jesus is still in the tomb and that he hasn't defeated death, he hasn't defeated sin. And what I mean by that is that I think it's just so easy for us to wallow in our guilt and in our shame and in our fear. And I'm not saying that those feelings aren't real or they're not even valid, but if we have a, a God who defeated death once and for all, and if we have that authority, we're called not to live in that condemnation anymore. I think we live that we're in a way that we're embarrassed, or we wake up in the morning acting as if um, we've just been de defeated from the start and that we're constantly having to, to, to climb out of this pit. When, when God is saying, no, you're seated as my child. Like, that's your position. That's your starting point. I think how we combat this is that we declare who God is, what he's done for us, and who we are to him. We see that David had to do this all the time in the Psalms, right? And if anyone had any reason to feel guilty, it was David. He, like, murdered a guy after he slept with his wife and, like, impregnated her. Like, he did some pretty terrible things, right? But the Psalms are full of him just praying to God and saying, God, I know who you are and that you're good. I know that you love me. I know that you have great blessings for me. David knew who he was even in the midst of his sin. I may have told this story before, but when I was younger and I would have bad dreams, I would just go into my parents' room, and my mom started telling me to just rebu rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus every time I would have a bad dream. And that, that, you think that's funny, and I mean, it is funny, 
like six-year-old Natalie like waking up in the middle of the night being like, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, and like went back to bed. Um, but I'm telling you, like that, that really was like my mom taught me the authority I had in Jesus to overcome the things that Satan had in my life. And I'm not saying that every dream is spiritual. I do know that for a, a good part of the, the first part of my life, a lot of, a lot of the nightmares that I had, a lot of things were spiritual attacks. And, and my mom taught me that, that we have authority over Satan in the name of Jesus, that he's given us that authority as children of God. And that's what we need to do. We need to know our authority and be confident in it. This isn't just um, some motivational speech saying like, okay, you're great and you can do everything you set your mind to. I'm not saying that. I, honestly, this is just much deeper than that. This is something much more. I think we need to act out of the knowledge that Christ has defeated sin. That at the cross, he's defeated the things that we constantly struggle with, the things that are inside of us that we keep being angry, that we keep falling into. Like, that's been defeated at the cross. We have a hope, and we have a hope also that God delights in using broken people. We saw that through Jonah. We saw that even through Job. We see it with David. He delights in using us. Yes, we're sinful. Yes, we fall. But he's given us an opportunity to overcome that when he died on the cross for our sins. So tonight we're going to end like we, we normally do with the response. Um, the band is going to come up and um, some staff and student leaders are going to pray at the sides. and We do this basically every week. And I do think that sometimes through repetition things become like they're just going through the motions. And I do want you guys to hear this. Um, because just because repeating it, it doesn't mean that it gets old or stale. And I'm going to explain, just to remind us the reason why we do this every week. If we come here on Thursdays and we learn something, um, but we leave it here, then we've just kind of missed the point. We don't go to classes just to get knowledge and fill our brains and then do nothing with it. Like, we go to college so that we can learn things as a means to an end so that we can apply that in our lives later on, that we can apply it in our jobs or when whatever we do. And so that's what it's like on a Thursday night as well. And what we do at small group and in Chi Alpha, like if we don't apply this, if we don't respond to what God's speaking, I think we've just gotten halfway there. We've just missed the point. And I think God wants to tell us something. I think he, got, he really wants something for us. He wants to speak. And that's why we respond this way every week. The past couple of weeks we've been making um, kind of the same call, and I think I'd be doing you guys a disservice if I didn't offer this again. Because in Romans 8, I think the first thing that we see is just a clear call to salvation. This chapter is the culmination of our faith. This prayer, this accepting Christ is the culmination of why we're here. It's the most important thing we'll ever do. Because we were sinful, Jesus came, he died for us, defeated death once and for all, and we get to live with him. But that's a choice. And Romans says that this is only for those who are in Christ. And so maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you've heard this a lot. Maybe you've never heard this. I don't know if you're new. But if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do it. I encourage you to pray with someone. I also recognize a lot of us in this room, we've, made, we, we've, we've prayed that prayer before. We've said that before. We've made that decision and so maybe our response needs to be a little bit different then. Maybe we need to live by the Spirit as Romans 8 has called us to do and has told us that we can do. One thing might be um, 
to lay down sin. There could be something in your life that is, is constantly at war inside of you that's of, of our flesh. And, and the truth is we're born with a sin nature and God calls us to confess of that sin, to lay it down. He's defeated it if we'll give it to him. So maybe you need to lay down some sin in your life. Maybe what you need to do is lay down holding on to guilt and shame. I know this is a part of my story, but there was a lot of guilt, there was a lot of shame that just built up and that I couldn't move forward into God, who God wanted me to be because there was this constant guilt and shame that was tugging at my heart and keeping me from him. If that's you, lay that down. Because Romans 8, 1 says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's defeated that. He's freed us from it. And lastly, I think that we need to stand on God and who he is and who he says we are. And that's his adopted children. That's his heirs who share in his inheritance. So if that's you guys tonight, I, I encourage you maybe to come pray with people on the sides. We do that just so that we can be sharing and growing with each other. We do life in community. We talk about that every week. And there's something important to confessing and to sharing and to praying together in community, to doing this together. The altars are also open, and we talk about that a lot, but the symbolism of the altar is just to be able to lay something at the feet of Jesus and saying, God, this burden is way too heavy for me. I need you to take it. And the Bible says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. He wants to take it from us. He doesn't want you to carry it on your own. And so the altar is a place for us to just lay it down, to kneel at his feet and to say, God, would you take this from me? Tonight, I really hope that we won't leave here unchanged, that we won't leave here without thinking about how does God want to relieve us of this burden of guilt, of shame, of sin that he's already conquered. So as we respond, as we pray, as we sing, as we worship, would we meditate, would we, would we pray about what are the things that God is asking us to, to lay down so that we can become closer to him? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for being so, so good and so gracious to us. And, and in the midst of our sin and in our natural state, God, that you would send your son to die for us, to make atonement for us, to die a brutal death, to be made fun of when you did no wrong. God, that you would do that for us so that we could be with you. You must love us a lot. And God, tonight, I pray that, that you would just lift off, off any burden of guilt or shame or condemnation that the enemy has put on our shoulders in this room, God. Anything that keeps us from discovering who you say we are. Jesus, I pray that that will be released in your name. We recognize that you're good, that you love us, and will we operate in the authority that we have as heirs of your kingdom, as adopted children. God, in all that we do, would you be glorified? Not the enemy, not the sin, not the guilt that we feel, but would you be glorified, Jesus? Show us how much you love us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us?